Hey everyone, welcome to Locked on Lakers for Thursday. Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky. Andy, you will never guess who has rocketed to the top of the odds list to be the next head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. Terry Stotts. Okay, you will guess. And that means we can talk about him. And we have Mike Richmond from Locked on Blazers covered and watched Terry Stotts teams for years. Break all of that down next. You are Locked on Lakers. Your daily Los Angeles Lakers podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Thanks to everybody for making Locked On Lakers your first listen of every day, Monday through Friday. We get this thing up as early as we can for you, no matter how you get your podcasts, where you get your podcasts. Uh, never behind a paywall, always free. And uh, if you go to Locked On Lakers on YouTube, uh, you get to look at us. Um, and if you look at us today, you also get to look at Jeff Perlman, uh, the author of Showtime, the author of Three Ring Circus. Of course, Showtime uh, was has been made into the HBO show Winning Time, which just wrapped its first season and is now going to have a second one. And uh, Because Jeff it was Berlin. a massive hit right off the bat, Jeff. Huge. You're, you're now a Hollywood mogul. I'm a big-time guy now. I, uh, I wish I had my sunglasses because I usually wear them indoors. <laughs> That's why you do your interviews lounging in bed now, because you can get away with it. You don't see someone rubbing my feet right now. <laughs> what's what's the point of us not seeing it, Jeff? A little more, little more cocoa oil, please. <laughs> is that an old school Tampa Bay Buccaneer shirt? It is a nice. Oh, nice. yeah. The swashbuckling Buccaneers of old. Um, so, like, are, when when this started, like, yeah, I mentioned there's a season two. Were you expecting that? You know, I, I read something you know, the other day that you weren't even expecting a season one. Um, you know, when, when, when this whole thing started to come together, um, how exciting is it? And then there, there will be a season two and the thing just keeps going. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's, um, it's, this is what, let's say, I, I feel like, uh, America hasn't been the easiest place to live in the last few years. And this has given me real joy and my family, real joy. And, um, it's just been a blast like the other day. So for the 10th episode and final episode of the first season, um, Max Bornstein and a bunch of the other, other writers hosted this season ending party at a house. And uh, my wife and my son went, it was in Venice Beats, and there was this house HBO was rented out for them to write in. And there's all this food and all these cast members. And like every time we get together with these people, it's just joy. It's like this celebration. It's like everyone, everyone, I think everyone involved feels like the show is really good. And when you're together with people, you're you're celebrating this thing that you've, you're all little pieces of. Like, I've never been, a, I've never done anything like this where usually you write a book. It's a very uh, isolating experience. Like books are isolating. You're by yourself. Maybe you're in a coffee shop, but you're by yourself. Here, there are a million people saying, oh, have you seen my show? And it could be the woman who plays Paul Abdul in two episodes. It could be me, the guy who wrote the book. It could be Jim Hecht who came up with the idea. It could be someone who did makeup. Like all these people feel connected to the show. And not trying to be corny, it's really kind of a beautiful thing. It's like a lovely thing when you get together with people and they all look at the TV and say, "Oh, that's my show. That's my show. That's my show." So I really have enjoyed that. I was I was still sort of thinking. I know you guys have been talking. I'm still thinking the house that they got for them to write in. Like I, I'm like, wait, what? I'm sorry. Okay, it's crazy. quite a budget. Oh, it's crazy. Wait, the amount. I'm being serious about this. Like when I went to the premiere party, I was like, 
I can't even fathom how much money they were putting into this thing. Like just this party, this insane, awesome, one of the best nights of my life parties. You know, like how much money are they putting into this thing? And and just all part of the joy of it all, you know. And it's like, uh, I mean, you guys are Jewish. Like it's like when you go to a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah is way over the top. Yeah. <laughs> For a minute, you're like, who are these idiot parents who are like? And then you're like, wait, why do I care? Like if they if they want to feed me six times a shrimp, you know, six times a shrimp. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah. That's how it is here. Obviously, not a kosher bar mitzvah. <laughs> 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 um, it's funny too. Oh, go ahead, Eddie. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Uh, I've heard you say many times, like you didn't even know who Adam McKay, the executive producer of this. For people unfamiliar with him, he's the director of The Big Short and Don't Look Up and and Vice. You know, a ton of stuff he did in the past, like Anchorman with Will Ferrell. You didn't even know who he was. Like, are, are you not a movie and TV person in general? I am kind of, but I'm not die hard. And like, uh, it's really funny. One of the the writers and the guy who originally came over with the idea is this guy, Jim Hecht. And Jim and I have become very good friends. 20 times he said a name and I'm like, he'll be like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And I'll be like, I don't know who that is. Or I don't know who that is. Like, um, the guy who plays Jack McKinney in the show is Tracy Letts. And... I, I don't know if most people... Do you guys know who Tracy Letts is? I, I know from the show. Right, right. not from he's beyond a, the show. Right. He's a Pulitzer-winning playwright, a Tony Award-winning actor. He's like uber, uber successful. And just as an example, no idea who he was. Like no remote idea who he was at all. And just um, besides like the big five, which I guess would be John C. Riley, Adrian Brody, Sally Field, Jason Segel... I don't know, whoever else. Like, I didn't know who any of these people were. None. Gabby Hoffman, you know, none. Huh. Wow. I just realized he he wrote uh, August Osage County. <laughs> that was a really big deal. <laughs> he was on my podcast yesterday, actually. The guy's fantastic, but I didn't know. Like, I'm just not that connected. I'm not, I don't pay attention like I should. When, when you write a, a book like that, I mean, I, I, it, was is there any part of you who that thinks like oh that, you know this is the kind of story that could be told for television that could be told in a movie that has a certain cinematic quality to it? I always because knew. I mean it is Hollywood. I mean you know the, yeah. the Showtime Lakers. I always knew this would be an HBO series from the moment I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh zero, literally zero. Like it never, it is never. The only time I wrote a book where I thought oh this could be maybe is I wrote a Walter Payton biography and I just found his life very cinematic in a way. And um, interestingly, it's one of the books I've written that has gotten almost no interest uh, film or adaptation wise. Like a lot of my books have been optioned through the years and nothing happens, but Payton, no one's touched. So obviously my judgment is not very good. It's amazing when you watch this, uh, some of the performances in there, like, like Quincy Isaiah as magic. Yeah. Like just, he just nails it. Yeah. And like beyond just the, the mannerisms and the vocal qualities and how much he physically resembles magic, you know, on and off the court, like that star charisma, like the, the that's something that really, you know, that magic had, but is really difficult for an actor to fake. And like, I just kept watching this thing going like, this guy is going to be a star. And then you look at somebody like Solomon Hughes, who I think nailed Kareem and manages, you know, I think also resembles him a lot or you know devon nixon it's not as hard for you to imagine him resembling his father norm but he gets it felt like a lot of qualities were, were there Did, how surprised were you at their ability to find actors who could you know really 
get into these very specific uh, qualities of these very, very well-known athletes? Um, it's really impressive. I remember when they were looking for Kareem in particular. Uh, at one point, there's a former University of Arizona basketball player named Lauren Woods. And I know he... Yeah. Uh, uh, Lauren Woods, I think, auditioned for the part. And I just think they, they thought he was good, but he didn't have something like Kareem had. And Solomon just has it. Like, he just has it. And I, it's lazy to say because everyone says it all the time, but like... He's a PhD and Kareem is very smart, blah, 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 blah. I don't know what it is. He just, you you watch a show and you do feel like you're watching Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's one of those things. And um, Quincy, I mean, I love Quincy. Like Quincy is, first of all, I'm being sincere when I say he's such a nice guy. He's just a nice guy and he's like a puppy dog and he's super charismatic and he oozes something about him. Just talking to him. He's just a really engaging sort of beaming light of a human being. And I think magic is the same way in a lot of ways. And so they have this natural charisma to begin with. Um, I love my favorite part of this show by far is just the number of guys, uh, Quincy playing magic, uh, Delante D'Souza playing Michael Cooper, Austin Aaron playing Mark Landsberger, on and on and on. Like these guys who are getting like, like one day they were just whatever, living their lives. And now they're starring on an HBO series. And it's just like a dream come true for so many of these people. Like it was never my dream. Like I never aspired to be involved with the project. This is just gravy on my life. Like this is fantastic. But for a lot of these guys, it is a dream. It's like a dream come true. And I just, I love seeing them live that. Like it warms my heart times a million. Oh, um, I, I would buy stock in Quincy Isaiah because that guy's going to be big. He's you know what? Real. I'll tell you something interesting. I really, I, so I, I was on that train a hundred percent and I'm not saying I'm not, but I had a talk one night with um rodney barnes who's one of the writers on the show and he's really taking quincy under his under his wing a little bit and he was saying how like you just never know in this business sure right? like we're always like oh this guy's gonna be a star she's gonna be a star and then they vanish right and it's just like it's such a fickle business that is one thing i've definitely learned and the people you think are going to be huge sometimes don't wind up huge and the people you think are hacks wind up you know having these sustained careers and i think um I think he has a load of potential. He has a load of charisma. Um, and I think he's a hard worker. So I feel like the foundation is there. But I just always think like, you just never know. You just never know. It's such a hard business. It's such a weird business. I am, um, I find it weird. Like the thing I have found, I've been struck by in this whole thing is like so many, uh, this is the people on the show have been great. Right. But you, I've dealt with a lot of people now and like, it really can be poisonous. Like the need for attention. It is an, unna I've said this before, but like it is an unnatural thing to live for applause. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's not a natural or healthy way to exist. I just think you gotta be really careful when you're a young actor that you don't get too sucked up in it. So I think he has potential. I think he's awesome. I think he's wonderful. He's one of my favorite people, but who the hell knows, you know? Um, so much more that we want to get into around the show. Um, you've also written about the Shaq Kobe years and just you have a great perspective on sort of the, the history of the Lakers and, you know, maybe uh, where they even are now, uh, which is historic in other ways. Um, so we'll get into all of that stuff next. Locked on Lakers brought to you by Built Bar. Okay, summer, it is approaching. You're going to have parties. You're going to have kids in camp. You're going to be driving all over the place, and you're going to need some food on the go. And Built Bars are the perfect snack to take with you on family vacations. You can just throw them in your bags and your kids' backpacks. You can stay fueled up for all your summer adventures and the best part about built bars they taste great and they're healthy all built bars and the puffs the protein infused 
marshmallows, they're covered in 100% real chocolate. So while you're eating healthy, you're actually going to enjoy it. They got great flavors for the puffs, including churro, banana cream pie. You can order a mix box of bars and puffs, and they got some of the awesome flavors there, like banana cream pie, raspberry, double chocolate. They're always just coming up with cool, unique, interesting combinations. And look, most candy bars, they're like 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, countless, countless net carbs. A built bar, only 130 calories, four grams of sugar, four net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. That's the good stuff. That's the stuff that you want. So go to built.com, use the promo code LOCK15, get 15% off your order. Again, promo code LOCK15, 15% off at built.com. You know, there's obviously been a lot, a lot written about, you know, Jerry West's response and and the, the response that other people have to, you know, the story and the way that the, the, this era of Lakers basketball was presented. Um, I, I, and I, I think probably have some questions about it too, but I'm kind of curious from your perspective as somebody who wrote the book, what is it like to see, you know, you know, things in the source material that is changed or, you know, altered for dramatic purposes and, and all that? So just to see that process go from um, something that is, you know, a, a book of historical nonfiction into something that is an entertainment product. Uh, so it definitely was a mental adjustment at first. Um, I have to think most writers go through this, whether it's like, I don't know, Michael Lewis or Angie Tom, whoever, like. You write something, it's based on fact and, and blah, blah, blah. And then there's this transition to TV. You know, like I always say with Moneyball, which Moneyball is great. Like in the movie, not a single mention of Miguel Tejada, who won the MVP that season, Eric Chavez, who had 30 home runs, or, oh, by the way, Tim Hudson, Mark Mulder, and Barry Zito in the starting rotation. There was all Scott Hattieberg who won the <laughs> You know, like... It is a mental, I'm sure it was a mental adjustment for him, for Michael Lewis, seeing this book and being transformed. And it definitely is a mental adjustment where you're like, I don't, okay, all right, I see what you're doing. And then you just, honestly, you sort of have to make peace with it. Like, I'm just being honest, you have to make peace with it. Like, it is not, your book is an inspiration for the show. Your book provides material for the show, but your book isn't the show, you know? And I had this talk actually with Tracy Letts on my podcast yesterday where he, he, he made a funny point. He's like, real life is pretty much boring. Like real life is boring. <laughs> He's like, well, it kind of is though. He's like, you walk into a, an office, you sit down in a chair. Like he's like, much of our life is spent sitting down in chairs and walking into offices. He's like, life isn't that boring. So what you, what you try to do with these projects, is you try to capture the essence of people. You try to try to capture the essence of time periods. But if you literally made it Jerry West walking into the office, and then sitting down in his chair and then opening up a newspaper. Like if you were a literal interpretist of what sort of, you know, it's not that interesting. So I've made peace with it. Um, I love the show. I do feel like it really, truly, truly captures the spirit of that team in that era. And I think that's what they were trying to do. Well, and it's a weird thing to this for, you know, people like West or Kareem or Magic. And, I, and I've seen you comment on this before and I've seen you comment on it with, a lot of empathy they're characters in winning time but in their real life they're not characters right so there there's a disconnect that the rest of us or even you as the author of the source material can have that i feel like all of them are going to have a more difficult time feeling like okay this is for entertainment purposes or this is to 
heighten the drama in this particular medium, but it's like, no, th this is still my life. I, I'm not actually a character. I mean, all this is weird. Like, uh, I always say, like, I have a Bo Jackson book coming out in a few months, okay? I called Bo Jackson, spoke with Bo Jackson. He really chose not to talk to me, right? He wasn't a jerk about it, but I'm not going to be a Bob. And I always think, like, at first I get annoyed. Oh, damn it. Come on, man. And then you're like, well, you're Bo Jackson, right? You don't know me. How much money am I going to get to do it with you? Actually, none. Well, how, much, <laughs> how much insight can I have into the narrative? Well, zero. Can I see the book before you hand it in? No, you can't do that either. So what, what exactly is in this for me? Like, well, right. I think you're the same. Like, you're Jerry West or you're Kareem. We're going to do this TV show. It's going to be based on your experiences. Oh, so you're going to, it's going to be like, you're going to talk to me and pay me as a, no, no. So is it going to be, you're going to keep it strict to everything, right? Well, no, not exactly. You know, like, how are you going to feel? And I also think the other twist to this that I hadn't thought of until just the other day is most of these guys, Magic in particular, have had their asses kissed their whole life. You're the greatest. You're the best. You're amazing. Blah, blah. I mean, they really have. And that's not an indictment of them. That comes with fame. Jerry, even Jerry West, you're the best GM ever. You're the logo. Kareem, oh my God, Kareem, you're the all-time leading script. Like, that's what they're used to. They're used to people saying, how can we make your life better? How can we praise you more? You're a Hall of Famer. Hall of Famer, Jerry West. Hall of Famer, Magic Johnson. And then a show comes along. And the, the funny thing about the show, in my opinion, I bet you guys probably agree, I do think it really pays tribute to those teams. I do not think it is a knocking down of these characters. I don't even think it's a knocking down of Jerry West. I think by the end of the series, you're like, I'm not even just saying this. Like a lot of people have come up to me and said, man, Jerry, I love Jerry West in the show. And I'm like, I love Jerry West in the show. So I get it. I just think there are a lot of mixed things going on. Well, it's funny, actually. And this was something I've talked about on, on Twitter before that I, I feel like in certain respects, the people both defending the show and the people attacking the show have gotten too bogged down in whether or not the producers have a right to take factual liberties, which I think everybody would agree they do. That's what the medium is versus whether or not whatever liberties justify themselves from like a storytelling or an artistic standpoint. Cause I think that's what really matters the most. It's like whatever changes you make, do they in the end pay themselves off? Do you understand why they did that? Do you think they add to or enhance the story? And I think, you know, there are certain choices that were made that I don't think worked as well. And I think there are others that I think worked really well. But to me, that's ultimately what the question is. And this is what always happens in every biopic or any type of thing like this, that none of it is going to be 100% historically accurate. Because even like with, with the books that you write, there's you're still getting like different people's perspectives and their perspectives aren't all going to be the same. Like true truth is really hard to pin down anyway. I think it's interesting how, um, I think you're right. As soon as a moment ends, it changes in our minds, right? So there is there even a truth? Like, again, I'm working on a Bo Jackson story. Someone tells me a story about his time at Auburn playing baseball with Bo Jackson. I'm trusting his memory to a certain degree, to a large degree. You know, oh, Bo threw me a, you know, Bo hit this ball and it hit cleared two trees. Well, there's a pretty good chance it only cleared one tree, you know? <laughs> or there's, a, I threw him a slider. Decent chance it was a curveball. Like we do trust, we have to trust memory and storytelling to a certain degree. We just do. The other thing I always find interesting, like Wood Harris plays Spencer Hayward in this show. He's great. Great. And Wood Harris was Julius in Remember the Titans. Yep. 
And there's a scene in Remember, and everybody loves Remember the Titans. I'm like the one guy who doesn't love Remember the Titans. Everyone loves Remember the Titans. Great movie. Oh, I love that movie. Bob, I show it to my team before. I mean, there's a moment in that show where Andy Batier, is that his name? The white kid? And, you know, because the whole thing is about the black and the white yeah. team. Okay. Julius walks into the hospital, and Andy is in the, I don't remember his name is Andy, but he's in the bed, and Julius comes to see him, and the nurse says, only family, only family allowed. And Andy says, can't you see the resemblance, Alice? He's my brother. Well, that should never happen. Like, we know that. <laughs> but that's, that's totally fine. Like, that is fine, right? It's okay. Um, if Julius had walked in with a machete, popping <laughs> Andy up, not okay. Like, there are <laughs> too much liberty. Too it's many liberties. Okay. <laughs> you know, if, let me... Uh, it's an interesting point that you bring up because I mean your books are great, um, and you know I, I've read a few of them. I've not read the Walter Payton book, but now I want to want to because apparently nobody wants to make it into a movie. Um, but when you are constructing stories, when you're even you know, and it's probably I would imagine it is harder the further back in history you go. How do you balance that as a writer when you know okay this is maybe mostly true kind of the the core of the story the point of it may be true but the details aren't like somebody you, trying to be truthful right they're never making stuff up intentionally to lead you the wrong but like just things that can't be a 100 verified or how do you as a writer writing books that are meant to be taken as you know true <laughs> handle that problem so number one it's definitely a flawed medium to a certain degree most mm -hmm. people don't say that but it really is a flawed medium for example um, I mean, again, you, I wrote a Brett Favre biography, just an example. And like, people told me the story of Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers really pissed him off because Brett Favre walks in for breakfast from one of the early days where they're together. And Aaron Rodgers says, Hey grandpa. Right. Okay. I got that from, you know, confirmed multiple people said it. So I asked the guy, well, what'd he say? And he said, well, he sat down with his eggs and he said, Hey grandpa. Now. It's possible he said, hey, Gramps. It's possible he said, hey, hey, Grandpa. It's possible he's, they talked for 10 minutes. And then he said, hey, Grandpa, get me the eggs. I am I'm relying on memory. Um, I, I, I will say this. I, 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 I wonder, too, like for guys like Bo Jackson, for Magic Johnson, for people like that who are just bigger-than-life personalities and so much, and their accomplishments in so many ways are bigger than life. Um, I, I, like, are, are some of the stories that you get there, I would just think there's a natural tendency to make like stories about magic kind of apocryphal, like, you know, where you get, you know, some of the details of just everything just becomes bigger because the person is bigger. So is that, does that happen? Yeah. I mean, it's actually interesting. Bo Jackson is a perfect example. He's a, he's the best example I've come across just coincidentally, which is he was such an athletic freak, right? That like. You know, oh, I mean, I'm actually being literal when I say this. The story of him jumping over a car in college, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I had to check that a million times over. Like, did he really jump over a car, right? The story of him standing in a pool up to his waist, bending his knees and leaping out of the pool onto the lip of the pool. Did those things really happen? There are a lot of things about Bo Jackson. The actual subtitle of the book is The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Yeah. Okay. Became mythology. But the thing is, he did run up the wall. You know, he did hit lead off the all-star game with a home run in 89. Like he did do these crazy, crazy, crazy ass he's things. He's the Paul Bunyan of athletes. I make that case in the book. He is the Paul Bunyan of athletes. He really is.
So, um, but yeah, we always add, and also, you know, sports fans, how we all are. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true. Like 10, 20 million people, it turns out, were game six of the 86 World Series, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so yeah. And the thing is also like, in a way, like sports is mythology. Like sports is like, we do build these games up and we make these things. And I think that's okay to a certain degree. Like, I think it is okay that there's this idea of Bo Jackson that he could do anything and tame lions and, you know, whatever. That's okay. It's sports. It's not world history in the same way. Um, all right. We have a couple other things we want to get into with you while we have you. Um, it, it, uh, kind of relating to how the Lakers operate. You've written about them twice um, and and just the, the, what the franchise looks like. Um, certainly, these are not great times. And we'll uh, we'll get into that next. Locked on Lakers brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online, your number one source for all your betting stats and sports info. You can get all the latest sports development, league reviews, and news, including NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, baseball. It's in full swing now. If you're still not exactly sure how the season's heading, you don't have a really good beat on things, go to the betonline.net preview sections. You can get a look at the AL, NL. They'll have a lot of details you didn't think about. And if you're looking big picture for some of your bets, they can give you a lot of really good advice and insight, steer you in the right direction. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sporting wagering information from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. So head to the website today, use your mobile device, learn more about the trends in action. Bet Online, where the games start. Uh, I do want to mention if you are a person who likes writing uh, or likes writers, you really ought to be uh, subscribing to Jeff's podcast. It's two writers slinging Yang. Um, if you are a writer, you definitely want to listen to it. If you are a person who's interested in writing, you would definitely enjoy it. Um, and if so, you're a young writer, by the way, uh, yes, I'm, I'm not going to throw Jeff's services out there just willy nilly, but he will mentor, and Jeff has done that. And you know, if you, for example, if if you enjoy Mirren Fader's work, and you should because it's incredible, I know Jeff has been a mentoring source for her and other people, so he is generous. I tell Mirren she can't call me a mentor anymore. She's We've been around she's been around now once you once you've been around long enough and you start winning some awards and once you have a book out and you're on the bestseller list you can't call me she's like you're my mentor i'm like Mirren, you can't call me your mentor anymore. <laughs> you gotta she go out right. and get your own mentee right. at this point right. she's yeah. real good yeah, um right. you did an excellent job uh making Mirren fader uh, so, yeah. <laughs> constructing yeah. her from whole cloth um so you know you've written uh showtime you've written about the shaq kobe era and three ring circus you look at the Lakers historically, and so much is made of the way they operate in terms of championships or bust and the you know the the great legacy and all that. When you think about that and, and just the, the sort of the history of the franchise, how how hard do you think it is? How much of a both, I guess, maybe an opportunity or a burden does that history become when you try to operate the team through? different eras because making the team great today is not the same as making it great in the Shaq Kobe years, which wasn't the same as making it great in the Showtime era. So when you have that through line, what, what challenges does it present a franchise? Oh, I think it's, I think it's insane. I mean, obviously this year was dreadful. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. No way getting around it. Nightmare. It is crazy that they won a title two years ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like forgotten, basically forgotten. <laughs> They won a title two years ago. Like it's, I've never seen it. I grew up a New Jersey Nets fan, right? And I'm talking about during the like Pearl Washington, Otis Bird song, Darwin Cook, horrible Nets. If they had won a title, like 
nobody would have been fired for the next 20 years. It would have been everyone <laughs> wearing t-shirts about it. I, I just think the expectations that come with success and a franchise um, that has a long history of not just uh, championships, but iconic players and iconic figures, your, your success is coming up really quick. And I do think, I think in a lot of ways, Jeannie is judged by the success of her father and her family and also the screw-ups of her brother. Like, I just think there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And um, I've never seen anything like this. I've really never seen anything like this. This year, obviously, was a horrible season. They deserve the criticism. Westbrook was a nightmare. It feels like 80% of society knew that would be a nightmare. So that I don't understand that at all. But um, they won a title two years ago. And it's like it never happened. And that is special to the late certain teams, Lakers, Yankees, Cowboys, those sort of franchises. I'm sorry. So the, the reason I ask is I, I always feel like it's limiting. I always feel like this aura that they have to live up to um, and how they have to do it can be very limiting. Um, you know, like the, almost like in, in many ways, the, the, the perception of the Lakers and what they do and how they win is sort of frozen in amber. And like, they can't respond in the same way that other teams would to modern problems, so to speak. And it, that, that, that's, it's, it's my perception. Other people may not agree, but that's just, it's one of the things I look at at this at, at, about the franchise. And I find completely fascinating. I actually agree with you. And I do think there are really three franchises in sports in America that have that same problem. It's the Lakers, the, the Cowboys and the Yankees where they're, they're as much McDonald's, you know, or Apple as they are a sports team. And with that weight and with the, that history, um, you can't, you're just not allowed to have sort of, you're not allowed to have an Oklahoma City Thunder sort of run where you're just like, yeah, we're going to rebuild and casual and, you know, all right, we probably won't sell as many tickets, but we're building something. And if you guys have paid, you know, five years, we're going to, you know, we have a good young coach. We like this good young coach and we're going to develop him. We're going to take our time and we're really going to take Brandon Ingram. And we're just going to give that guy space to grow. And we're going to take Lonzo Ball. We're going to give them space to go. Like, you don't really get those luxuries. Um, and and I think it's really, like I grew up in New York. So with the Yankees, it was always the same thing. Like you could bring along a Derek Jeter and you could bring him along a Mariano Rivera. But you always had to surround them with the veterans that gave you a chance to win. You couldn't call up seven rookies at the same time. There had to be an expectation every year that you're going to at least be in the in the hunt. And teams like the Lakers are not afforded that at all, just based on their history. Again, I know I said, like, two years ago they won a title. <laughs> I think that's crazy. They won a title two years ago, and nobody gives a crap. Well, I, I think it's specifically, though, it's not just that they won. It's not, I think, just erasure of that title from two years ago. It's that that title is sandwiched in between a lot of losing yeah. and, a, and a lot of chaos and instability and you know a revolving door of coaches. And it doesn't take away from the achievement of the title. Because those things are precious. And I think sometimes if you're a Laker fan, you can lose perspective on that. Like it, you just, they seem easier to get than they actually are. But I think that's why this title in particular hasn't resonated in a way that provides assurances that, you know, the, that other situations or, or titles might. It's because it feels like sort of to quote train spotting uh, a blip in an otherwise steady downward trajectory you know it was a really bad sign this year i thought a really bad sign from the beginning is the excitement over austin reeves like i i just thought like he's okay like he's a 
he's on most NBA teams as a eighth, ninth, tenth guy. And the excitement over Austin Reeves. And I get like there's a certain ugliness that people love the scrappy white guy and blah blah blah. We can, that's a whole sociological thing, but like he's got great hands, runs good routes. Right, great sure. hands, petty, you know, blah blah blah. But like there was legit excitement over Austin Reeves. And it's like if you're getting if this is where your excitement is placed, your optimism, you got real problems because he's a marginal NBA player. Well, it's just it's and beyond that, the the success of Austin Reeves is a is just a scathing indictment of everything that you did in the summertime because Austin Reeves should be playing in the G League, you know, developing talent. Like so in a couple of years, hey, that we found this rotation. To be good. Yeah. It yeah. was it was a staggering indictment of every single free agent that they brought in to try to do this because he shouldn't have been on the floor. Um yeah. I it, it 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 the whole thing was joyous wildly entertaining. <laughs> I would say wildly entertaining. I thought this was one of the most entertaining years. Really? You're the guy. Fan. I'm just a guy who writes books. Okay. But like, they were wildly entertaining. They were, it was crazy watching the show be done at the same time this team turned into diarrhea. Like it was amazing. And like Russell Westbrook being that bad was fascinating. Fascinating. And like, I do think it's really a fascinating. I, no one would buy the book or I would write the book. Like it is interesting that like you bring in Carmelo, you bring in Russell Westbrook, you have this injury prone center who's wildly talented, but can't stay healthy. You have this aging LeBron who's like clearly the chess master, but he doesn't really, he's not really good at that. And like all these characters, I want Dwight Howard who seems somewhat insane. And like all these characters, <laughs> one area, and like nobody with the judgment to say this is a bad idea. Like nobody willing to say this is a bad idea. Like that is a fascinating, someone's going to make the mistake and write a book about this and nobody's going to buy it because nobody wants to relive this. But like, I disagree with you. I think what? people would absolutely read the book. Really? Yeah. I, nobody would want to relive the actual experience of watching this team as a fan, you know, with, with the stakes involved of the season in real time. Yeah. Would they want to go back and find out more of just how the F this actually happened? Yeah, yeah they would. It, I wanted to ask you, though, because you've spent a lot of time around Jeannie Buss. I, I, I think you know her reasonably well. Um I'm walking, by the way. I, <laughs> no, I like yeah, this. Yeah, I like okay, this. You're adding motion. I assume you're exciting. something like that. <laughs> um, Two-part question for you. One, why do you think she tends to keep the front office and, and the people whose decisions matter the most so insular and so much just in terms of like long-standing familiarity as opposed to outside voices who – you know, she may not be as familiar with, but might have more to actually offer basketball wise. And then the second part is just how do you think she's done with this transition from running back uh, business ops, which by all accounts, she was very, very good at to this place of being the ultimate shot caller in the organization? I mean, it hasn't gone well. That's obvious. Um, I so first of all, I have to say, and I know this is like unnecessary to say, I really like Jeannie. Like I really like Jeannie. I think Jeannie's a generally good and decent person. And it hurts me uh, just as a person. Like I actually hate seeing this sort of, I, I do. I just really like her. Um, I think it, the Lakers are such a weird situation because they're a family business that to a certain degree stopped being a family business. Like if you look at them, 
they maintained employees for years and years and years and years, like years. You know, Jerry West obviously worked for them forever. Cupcheck, a long time. Um, John Black, Gary Vitti, like on and on and on. People would be in that in that office forever. And I, I think they've gotten away from that. And I, the thing is, I don't know if that's good or bad. Like, I actually don't know the answer because on the one hand, you end up having people stay for a long time and maybe they're not really qualified or good at their jobs anymore. On the other hand, you start bringing in people who kind of suck at their job <laughs> or, or who, like, to me, from this vantage point, I think that I kind of feel like LeBron is the poison a little bit. Like, I just think, like, LeBron, he's a brilliant player. But I think, like, he, I, there aren't that many instances where a player is the most powerful person in an organization and it goes very, very well. Like, just not. You know, like, I was covering Major League Baseball uh, during the late 90s at Sports Illustrated. And, like, when the Yankees were rolling, right, you knew the power structure on the Yankees. You did. And I'm not saying I'm happy to see players have more power. Players be making as much money as they want. I'm just saying when it comes to personnel, it does not work well because you come with a lot of biases and you come with a lot of sort of impulses that maybe aren't good for team building. Um, adding Carmelo Anthony, just as an example, it made no sense. Like it didn't really make any sense. Like he's an old, fragile player who's very limited at this point. Adding Russell Westbrook, it really didn't make any sense. And I just think like the main path for me from from this viewpoint, the main problem is LeBron has way too much sway and say over what's going on. Is that a culture thing? Because, you know, when you had a star driven Lakers team, you also had the ballast of Phil Jackson there. You still had Dr. Buss. Yep. Um, you know, you still there was there was there Jerry was West for a time. Jerry, you, know, you had counters to that. You know, obviously. The Showtime Lakers, that was a totally different era in terms of just how powerful players could get, period. Um, and Magic was probably as powerful as anybody around and still wasn't what, what LeBron what, is today in terms of that kind of influence. Um, is that just, I mean, I, I wonder, the other thing, I, I wonder sometimes if the Lakers just misunderstand their own culture and misunderstand their own history when they try to apply it to figuring out why they've been successful and why not. And, you know, the this may be a misapplication of it in terms of stars. Yes, but stars without the other stuff that we always had to balance that stuff out. I mean, in a way I actually disagree with you on magic. I, Pat Riley was by now. Pat Riley felt a kinship with magic Johnson mm -hmm. and a, sort of a partnership with magic Johnson to a certain degree. But Pat Riley was the most powerful guy in that organization at that time. And Pat mm -hmm. Riley called the shots. And when Pat Riley said, swim, you swam. And if he said, jump, you jump. And, um, he made it this culture. He created this culture from Pat Riley down. Um, that does not exist. I and mean, that barely exists in the NBA anymore, but it definitely doesn't exist with the Lakers. Um, I don't know. I don't even know. The thing is, I don't know in the modern NBA if that could ever be again. Because hmm. if you look around the league, there aren't really that many places where, like I think in a way the exception is Dallas. Like Mark Cuban has created something. Obviously, they, they don't win that many championships, but he's created a steady consistency where the power clearly comes from Mark Cuban. Mm -hmm. And he's almost, in a way, established his own cred. Like Mark Cuban has a certain cred with players that they respond to. I don't think the Lakers have that, but I don't know if it's possible. to. I just don't know if that's a possible thing anymore, really, in the NBA. It seems like it's such a player-power-driven league, um, and the idea is to build star teams with star players, and those guys call the shots, and they always hold... 
you know, who's the most powerful guy in Portland right now? It's Damian Lillard by far. What does Damian Lillard want to do? We have to do everything to keep this guy happy. So I don't know what you do if you're the Lakers. It's it's hard. Um, the the book, if you haven't read it, is is Showtime. There's also Three Ring Circus. There's how many other ones? Um, Bo Jackson comes out in October. That'll be the tenth book. Okay, that'll be. Uh, and they're all worth reading, and they're all excellent. And then uh, the podcast is Two Writers Slinging Yang. Thanks so much for giving us the time. This is a lot of fun. We always yeah. like when we get to catch Real up. Real excited for you, man. This has been really cool. I, it's been obvious how much you've enjoyed it, man. And it's it's just oh. fun to see. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.